Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen is joined by Michael Trout and Lori Thomas for part one of their conversation about the Jonathan Letters, one family's use of support as they took in and fell in love with a troubled child. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. Part 2 will be released on March 24th. Well, hello, everybody, and the Attachment Theory in Action podcast listening group. Um, I have here with me today Lori Thomas, and Michael Trout. And these are familiar names to many of my listeners. Um, Michael has been on here uh, on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast extensively. And Lori has also been on here before. Um, Lori is a therapist and also um, a foster, adopt, biological parent, um, and has um, also shared on the podcast before. What we're going to be talking about today is the book, The Jonathan Letters. Sought after speaker and trainer Karen Doyle Buckwalter and trauma-informed school specialist Josh Carlson are coming together for a one-day workshop you won't want to miss. June 5th in Atlanta, Georgia, Lessons from the Toughest Kids features practical evidence-based strategies for working with challenging children and adolescents. You'll experience engaging lecture, discussions, and role play with proven strategies from over 25 years of working with some of the nation's most complex children. Go beyond theory and book knowledge with Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson, June 5th in Atlanta, Georgia. Tickets are on sale now. Visit tkcchattock.org or find us on Facebook. So thanks so much to both of you for being here. Thanks for asking us. Anytime I can be around either of you is a grand day. And when I can be able to interact with both of you at once, that is like super duper awesome. So I'm, I'm happy to be here with you guys. So let's share with listeners um, how this book came about, like how, how this whole correspondence started with you guys. Um, just to give a little bit of context, the, the book is is letters and correspondence back and forth between the two of you about a child that Lori was at first fostering. So one of you, whoever would like to start, share how this all started out. Well, I've been fascinated for a long time about how it is that families acquire the support that I believe they so desperately need when they're raising a severely troubled child, a child of loss or trauma. And I am not an expert on that at all. I've tried to provide that support, but more than anything, I've tried to research what it is that families actually need by way of support. I, I grew pretty aware early on that um, education is really not the most helpful thing. In fact, it's often one of the least helpful things for families in this situation. So it's not that kind of support. They don't need more flyers or more information or even to sit in a room and listen to an expert tell them all about their child. So in it, that's the basic, that's the context everybody should know about. This was not a, a mom with a child 
and a, and a expert on the other side of the country who knew all sorts of things that she really needed to know. Um, it's not that at all. <laughs> you want to say what it was for you, Lori? Well, for me, what it was, was a lifeline, a level of support, knowing that somebody was hearing us, hearing our struggles, and was willing to listen. And as, as simple as that sounds, it was profoundly life-changing and powerful. And I think Michael should tell the story of, of how we met, how this all began, because it's pretty, uh, pretty fun. Yeah. Because well, you, you are not geographically close to each other. No. Illinois. Well, I have an uncle that I adore. Um, and he has a daughter that he adores and that I certainly respect. And she's a, was then a school teacher. And so on one of my trips to visit my uncle on the East Coast, he asked me if I would meet with him and his daughter to talk about something. And the something was that his daughter wanted me to know about a, a student in her class that she thought was exceedingly cool. Um, and to tell me then about that student's parents and family who had another child uh, or were thinking about taking in another child. I don't remember exactly what the timing was at the moment, who was uh, going to be a big problem. And since I surely knew lots about kids with big problems, couldn't I please help them? <laughs> yeah, I, it's important that the listeners hear all that because it's different if somebody calls you on the phone and says, could you please help me? Or when your uncle that you just have adored since you were a preschooler and his daughter, who's really cool, ask you. Yes. I was kind of stuck. I explained that I, I was a licensed therapist. I could not offer treatment across the country. I couldn't do it by phone. I couldn't do it by any other means I could think of. But I guess it would be okay if the family wanted to write me a letter and tell me a little bit about themselves. And maybe I would write back to them once with a thought or something. And that's, yeah, I, I reread original contract. Yeah, I read that in the book as I was preparing for the interview, how it was going to be, it was, it was set up that it would be one letter from Lori, who was in Virginia, to this Michael Trout man who is in Illinois, and then he could maybe answer a couple questions or direct her to an article or two, and, and I just... I almost howled out loud when I, I read this, you know, very clear contract that was set up. <laughs> so that's not, that's not what happened, huh? No, silly me. <laughs> and so, Lori, what were you thinking? You, you, this teacher said, you know, I, I know of this person that might be of help, and, and what was going on in your mind and, and your thinking at the other end of this? Well, what she said was more to the point of, boy, this new child that you're thinking of taking in looks like he's really going to be a handful. I have a cousin who's an expert on kids like that. <laughs> I know he's going to help you. Oh my and she was just full of just her energy and let me get you connected. So the opportunity to get connected even one time just seemed like such a treasure. 
And so, of course, once given the opportunity, I sent that first letter. And I was beyond elated when we received a response to it that really showed the depth of knowledge <laughs> that this Michael Trout guy had, but also the, just the feeling, and this is so important, I think, for parents to hear, the feeling that somebody understood, that somebody was willing to listen, even to the things he might not have experienced in his own family, I don't know, um, but just just to have somebody hear what we were experiencing and respond to it with just gentleness, just to yes. hear was so, so important. And so I took advantage of that and I wrote back, even though that was against our already agreed upon- Laura, you broke the rules that right off the bat? Apparently I'm a rule breaker. <laughs> Apparently she didn't realize how tough I, I was. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Michael, uh, one of the things I know you've shared before was you were really struck by what Lori wrote to you, not just this first time, I know ongoing, and we can talk about that more, but what struck you about her that also led you to sort of think, well, yeah, maybe I won't keep this boundary I set so firmly. I don't know that I ever made a decision and I keep this boundary so firmly. I think I sort of just flopped, <laughs> flopped over. <laughs> and and that's, anybody that knows me well, uh, how structured and disciplined. I, I know I, that's not what you do. No, I don't do that. So you don't do that. <laughs> that's why I didn't even phrase the question that way. And it wasn't necessarily that I saw in in Lori or in what I was starting to fantasize about her family, some miracle that made them likely to succeed when no one else could. It was more that at that time, people in my field had failed families miserably for at least a decade uh, as, as more and more families came over from other countries and came from child welfare in this country. Uh, who were really, really in bad shape. We had no idea what to do with them and to them, and we did a whole bunch of things that were wrong. Mm -hmm. I won't get into all the details of that, but the point is that the bar for Lori could reasonably be set pretty low for who might help because we, we all were terrible at it. All, all people like me in social work and psychology and in uh, other child welfare related areas. And so this was 20 years ago. The, just to give some um, context for the listeners, this started in 2000, and am I correct? That sounds about right. Yeah, and then the, the book was actually published in 2005. So we are talking, as you said, 20 years ago, things were looking a lot differently in terms of what we understood about attachment, adoption, trauma, I mean, a lot has happened. It would, for example, be not at all uncommon for someone like Lori to take a child like the one she was thinking of taking in to a shrink of some kind who, who looked as if he or she might be able to help and immediately be told to wait in the waiting room while said shrink took the child off to 
is our office. Mm -hmm. So already all kinds of principles are being violated. Um, so that's, that's how things work. So I, you, maybe part of what I'm saying is, boy, did I have a chance to look good given, <laughs> the, given the comparisons to everybody else at the time. Now, Lori, had you, had you tried other forms of help before beginning this correspondence with Michael? Well, to give context to this, so this, this was a child who had had multiple placements, and this was not our first child. We had several already, some biological and a couple adopted. And so we thought we were decent parents. This wasn't your first rodeo. This was not our first rodeo, nor was it our first adoption. But it was our first child who really struggled with the ability to attach to a family and struggled mightily. And exactly what Michael said happened uh, when I took him to the therapist that had seen him previously. She said, you can wait in the waiting room, mom, and I will work with your son and I didn't know a lot about attachment but I knew that it was a relationship and I didn't see how I could be building a relationship with my son when I was in the waiting room and he was with the therapist and so I um excuse I, me be, be alert listeners because Lori just addressed part of Karen's question I want you to hear the common sense wisdom in a mom who didn't know much about therapeutic practices, but knew this couldn't be right. <laughs> That's all wrong. And so I followed my instincts. I, I questioned the therapist. She agreed to let me come in one time and one time only. And then promptly after that, I called the social uh, worker on our son's case and um, asked to be changed to a different therapist and was given choices and and chose somebody who would see me with my child yeah and so that was the only time i went in with that therapist she was correct about that it's just that she would not be seeing my therapist any further so and let me interrupt again answer number two has just been given to karen's question what did i see in this mom or this family that drew me she's cocky <laughs> And she, she has the audacity uh, to think she knows something. And when she thinks she knows something, she sticks to it. And I knew enough about these kids to know that was probably a requirement. Yes, it's true. Sorry, sorry for keeping interrupting. I just want listeners to make sure they catch on to who this lady appeared to be. To be. Yes, no, I think it's wonderful. I appreciate you bringing our attention to it, Michael. So there began the journey. Mm -hmm. What an amazing thing when, as a family, we were struggling with what's the next step, what, what can we do, and to have somebody that at 1 a.m. when, certainly there's no therapeutic services available at 1 a.m., but that was about the time of day when I could start to breathe again when all of my kids were finally asleep and nobody was setting any fires or hurting the dog and I could think for a few minutes and at that point I could pen another letter and send it out with hopes that this man who had already broken his rule once about responding again would continue to do that. 
Yeah, and we should we should share with listeners that um, this child, I know you said it earlier, had had uh, four, four previous placements, and, you know, it was clear in the file that this was going to be a challenging child to parent based on what they had been through. And um, the other thing that I had to kind of smile but not in a happy way when I was rereading um, some of the Jonathan letters that you initially said no and um, the child ended up coming to the home in one of the situations that many of us in, in the field of child welfare are very familiar with the old let's call them back as a temporary placement <laughs> The old, could you keep them for a few weeks because we have another placement in mind long term? So, so this is how you ended up having this child. So, um, you weren't uh, fully thinking you were committing to to a, a parenting long term and adopting the child. I think that's another interesting aspect to this. Yeah. Definitely. So we definitely weren't thinking long term. We very quickly recognized that there wasn't another placement and um, that we had choices to make. And that was to figure out if we could do it long term um, because there wasn't another option for him. So we were going to have to turn him back over to the system or we were going to have to figure out how to do it. We, as, as it says in, uh, in the meditations, what were we thinking? We were thinking he needed us, and we might have what it took to hang in there with him. But part of what we had was a support system in Michael Trout. But you see here, I was given pause by by what uh, I know you were thinking at the time and you just talked about. Because I thought, gee whiz, these people are gonna make a decision that could just tear their house apart on the basis of the fact that he has a need, that's it. And so I worried. I had known people like that, so to speak. People who responded to a whimpering child by reaching out their arms and had no idea what they were in for. So I was worried and it made me want to pull back. But boy, there were so many streaks starting to, to show themselves in those early notes I was just um, fascinated by who this family was. They were more than just a family who picked up strays. What I remember thinking about is how, as I would read the book um, from, from your perspective, Lori, was how reflective you were about yourself, about your child, about your situation. And, you know, sometimes I, uh, I, I didn't know some of the words and research maybe when I first re read it, such as mentalization and self-reflection and mindfulness and all of that. But boy, was there a lot of that going on in the way that you wrote. Um, and I, I just sit there and I think, how could she just be so exhausted? Like you said, it's one in the morning. I've had this desperate day. Um, this is the first minute I have to myself. 
but then somehow you maintained that reflective capacity. How, how did you, where did that come from and how did you keep doing that? Because if we could bottle that, um, <laughs> that would be really helpful for others. Well, I think part of that was a survival skill. I, I really had to give thought to what was going on and to try to stay maybe a step ahead of what was going on, if I could, which wasn't always possible, but to kind of think through in a broader sense what was happening so that we could stay present with this child. And part of that caused me to do what we all know now in the, in the field, so important is to do our own reflection as parents on our own history. And it, it definitely brought me to a point where I started looking at my own attachment history, my own childhood, and what it was that would compel me to want so desperately to help this child who so desperately needed it. And that was a really positive process for us. It was painful and long, but positive. And um, that was definitely part of what kept us going. I do not know what the outcome would have been though. Had we had a therapist locally, Michael stressed the importance for that of that, that that was not his role. Um, we had some local support that we put together, but what we really needed was somebody to still really be hearing us. And if we could all have a Michael Trout hearing us, and I'm not saying that everybody has the right to Michael Trout, because I think uh, we all need somebody. We all need somebody that can hear us when we're in the process. It's one of the first promises now, you know, you're probably aware of the impact that this book and this time had on my life. And that was that it really um, inspired me once I was done parenting this child and several others. And we had them launched to go back to school and to start and to enter the field myself. And it's one of the first promises I make to parents is I'm here to hear you. And if if I can do nothing else but start off with that promise that I will listen, I will be present, and I will hear what you have to say, I think that's so important. And this, Michael taught me that through his presence with us. But it's not just important that you commit to that and that, and that you know it's important for parents to be listened to, but a scam can be pulled um, on parents who believe that someone is willing to listen to them only to discover that the listener is not really listening by which i mean to say they don't they've not done enough of their own stuff to be able to keep their own stuff out of the way and shut up um, they don't know enough about the child to be able to be quiet and learn about the child you have to know a lot about children i think to be able to shut up and listen to one particular family tell you all about this one. Only that way can you be sure you don't, you're not applying what you think you know about some other child to this child. And you, you had all that. So I knew that when you entered this field and you made this promise that you just referred to to families, they could count on it. They would truly be listened to. 
You know, and I think that that's really an important distinction that Michael is bringing up because um, a lot of our audience, um, they are therapists. And so they're thinking, well, duh, of course I listen to people. But I think that really talking about what that means and um, not doing what, what what Michael said was just like, oh yeah, of course I listen to people like next point, um, but really understanding what that means, understanding your own bias, understanding your own judgment, understanding what you're bringing into the room in addition to all of your training or knowledge or book information. I guess that makes me want to ask Lori, what was it about how Michael listened that felt different to you or that felt like this is really what we need? Michael was able to offer support without judgment. He would would reflect on what we said and sometimes he would gently nudge you know some people think this and some people think that and he would he would um he would nudge us to really think about what we were saying or what we were doing but it was always we never felt afraid to share and i think that happens a lot in therapy where we can be afraid to share things because there's going to be a judgment about it and there's it's it just doesn't feel safe. It, it felt completely safe. And safety, I think, has to be number one. But didn't I uh, accuse you of being crazy a time or two? You did, but you were probably accurate in that. <laughs> <laughs> How did I get away with that? <laughs> Seriously, why did me say that to you? I, I took that as a good-natured, what on earth are you are you thinking? And it was, it definitely prompted us to think. My husband and I would sit and say, okay, so what are we, what are we doing here? What are we thinking? Um, It never was a deterrent, but it was a thought-provoking moment. It caused us to reflect a little more. Yes. Oh, that's so good. Well, I see we're at our midway point here. So I'm going to have us wrap things up for part one of this and we'll continue here um, with part two. But listeners, thank you for being with us so far. And we're going to be continuing this conversation um, with the Jonathan letters about the Jonathan letters with Lori Thomas and Michael Trout. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.